Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. America's food safety system comes under fire from some of the people inside it. A survey of food inspectors finds political and corporate influence undermining food safety. What we had were 330 respondents telling us that public health had been harmed by businesses withholding food safety information from agency investigators. Also, the Food and Drug Administration considers approving the first food from a genetically modified animal. We learn more about transgenic salmon. A single copy of the growth hormone gene from the Chinook salmon has been inserted into this Atlantic salmon genome. That extra copy basically confers the ability to grow more rapidly in that first year of life. But critics want to stop what they call frankenfish. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The recent massive recall of tainted eggs put food safety back on the front burner and put some heat on Congress to consider a food safety bill that has passed the House but languishes in the Senate. A recent survey from the Union of Concerned Scientists added new voices to the debate, federal food safety workers. The UCS asked some 7,000 inspectors and scientists in the Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration how they rate the job they do. Francesca Griffo of the UCS says the survey found a lot of concern about political and corporate influence. They told us a lot of things, but I think the big picture piece of it was that, you know, we have a food safety system that is trying to do the right thing, and we have a lot of really good people out there trying, but we also have a system where special interests and political interference are just, it's just too easy for them to inhibit the ability of these agencies to protect our food. Give me some specifics. What uh, did your survey tell you about what workers at FDA and USDA think about political interference? Well, we had 507 respondents tell us that they had personally experienced one or more incidents of political interference. Now, that's not heard about, read about, thought about. That is personally experienced. And that's a very big number. What are we talking about when we say political interference? What might have happened there? Many different things, but we're talking about inappropriately excluding or altering technical information or conclusions in an agency scientific document. It might also include experiencing selective or incomplete use of data. In other words, another word for this is cherry picking. So going through and picking out the data that actually gives you the regulatory outcome that you're after. Now, what we're talking about when we talk about political interference is not so much what the role of the science is in the decision-making, but what happens to that science along the way as it goes from the scientist to the regulator or decision-maker. You also asked about the role of corporate influence. What did they tell you about that? 
They told us a lot. We're looking at businesses withholding food safety information from agency investigators. Now, what does that mean? That means that when a inspector has a question about a piece of food, they go back to industry and say, hey, can you tell us where this came from? Can you tell us about the distribution network? Can you tell us any number of different things that, in fact, instead of saying, wow, let us just open up these records so that we can get to this and make sure that the public is safe, in fact, what we had were 330 respondents telling us that public health had been harmed by businesses withholding food safety information from agency investigator. And what sort of time frame are we talking about here? Are these people talking about incidents from many years past or here recently? We had both. We specifically wanted to tease that out because we were very interested in whether or not a change in administration had, in fact, changed the situation at these agencies. We did do a survey at FDA in 2006, and we are seeing incremental improvements. But certainly, as long as we have 507 respondents personally experiencing one or more incidents of political interference, and that is within the past year, we still have a fairly big issue out there to tangle with. I guess you also put in a share your thoughts section here. Give mm-hmm. us a, give us a flavor of what the respondents had to say there. They really came back to us with a lot, a lot of rich information. And one of the ones that I really like is from a USDA employee who said, first of all, remove food safety inspection service from USDA. It's like having the fox in charge of the hen house. Any action we try to take has to pass industry scrutiny. And the impact on the bottom line, inspectors in the field lose every time because the bureaucrats at district level and above will not support any action that goes against the wishes of the industry. I mean, that's a hard position to be in, to be that employee who's on the line and trying to get attention and interest for that. What happens when one of these uh, workers within the system speaks out and tries to, to correct the things they see going wrong? You know, there are multiple whistleblowers. I mean, that's what we call somebody who really sees something wrong and tries to bring it to people's attention. One who we've had particularly moving conversations with is a gentleman named Dean Wyatt, who was a USDA veterinarian who oversaw federal slaughterhouse inspectors. He was not able to speak out about things he was seeing on the line, about problems and issues that had direct relationships to people's safety. So based on what you're hearing from the people who work in the food system in the survey, what political reforms would make our food safety system better? You know, I think having the eyes and ears that are there on a daily basis able to speak out about it is critical. So that's whistleblower protections. It's also that the scientists looking at this need to be able to publish. And, you know, people like you need to be able to call them on the phone, talk to them, and have them not fear retaliation for speaking out. Right now, it's very difficult for them to do that. They're the eyes and ears inside. We need to have a way for them to get that information outside. How does what you've learned in the survey here pertain to the legislation that is pending on Capitol Hill in in the Senate? There are four major reforms in that legislation. One is more authority for mandates for the food recalls, more resources to protect food safety. Right now, you know, those are a part of the bill. We need to make sure that we have more inspections and that we have inspections more often. Right now, those are part of the bill. We need to make sure that we really look at requiring food production facilities to conduct science-based hazard analysis. Right now, those are in these bills. So we hope those pieces stay in those bills and that we end up with a really strong piece of legislation that will allow Americans to get the protections they expect and deserve.
Francesca Griffo with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. Latest reports from Capitol Hill say Oklahoma Republican Senator Tom Coburn has blocked the food safety bill. That essentially kills its chances, at least until Congress returns after Election Day. Well, the rocky economy and the rise of the Tea Party are driving midterm election campaigns. The primaries brought some stunning upsets and a lot of candidates who oppose action on climate change. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Mitra Taj joins us to talk about what the elections might mean for federal action to cap greenhouse gases. Hello, Mitra. Hi, Jeff. So, Mitra, what's the takeaway from uh, the primary season when it comes to climate change? Well, I think we saw candidates very critical of legislative action on climate change win their party's nomination. We saw that when Republican primary voters in Nevada and Alaska chose Tea Party-supported candidates who had expressed doubts about the threat of climate change. And we saw it recently in Delaware in the Republican race for Senate when Christine O'Donnell beat nine-term Congressman Mike Castle. Mike Castle among just eight Republicans in the House to vote for the uh, cap-and-trade climate bill there. How did that vote play out in the campaign for Senate in Delaware? So O'Donnell really seized his yes vote as an opportunity. She repeatedly attacked cap-and-trade and Castle's support of it and made very clear how she would have voted. I believe cap-and-trade is one of the most destructive pieces of legislation in American history. That will push us much more towards socialism than ever before, if not be the final nail in the coffin that makes America a socialist society. Now, the Democrat she faces in the general election, Chris Coons, says he's in favor of a cap-and-trade solution to climate change, which is interesting because, you know, cap-and-trade really emerged as a Republican policy tool under the first Bush administration, a sort of market-based alternative to traditional environmental regulation. But if you look at the crop of Republicans running for office this year, it's hard to find any who've expressed support for it. Is it just cap-and-trade that they're against? Actually, several of these Republican candidates have gone a step further and are actually questioning the science of climate change, not just the policy proposals to solve it. So I noticed Christine O'Donnell and a lot of the Republican candidates have signed on to something that's called the No Climate Tax Pledge. What's that all about? That's a pledge to taxpayers that says, basically, I'll oppose any climate change legislation that increases government revenues. And so far, some 600 politicians have signed on to the pledge and... The group behind it, Americans for Prosperity, is funded by David and Charles Koch, um, two brothers who run a big petrochemical conglomerate called Koch Industries. And they've been very active in supporting the Tea Party movement and also in funding opposition to environmental regulations. Uh, The green group Greenpeace reports that Koch has spent $50 million to help kill regulations on greenhouse gases. And Coke Industries' response is that it's just promoting economic and intellectual freedom and not opposing any particular piece of legislation. So, so what are we seeing happening on the, on the Democrat side when it comes to climate change so far in, in the elections? Many Democrats who face serious challenges from Republicans are, are pretty cautious about voicing support for climate action, especially those from states with strong ties to fossil fuels. Just recently, a few showed up at a coal rally on Capitol Hill, organized by a pro-industry group that flew in coal supporters from Appalachia. Be proud to be a coal miner. Stand up for coal mining. Whose jobs? Whose coal? Whose children? And 
at the rally, a number of prominent lawmakers climbed on stage to profess their love for coal, including West Virginia Governor Joe Manchin, the Democrat running against Republican John Racy for the Senate seat left open when Robert Byrd passed away. And Manchin's trying really hard to out-coal his opponent, as you can hear here. President Obama is wrong on cap-and-trade. Lisa Jackson is wrong with the EPA attacking the energy that fuels America. What sounds like Governor Manchin there is going after EPA for using their authority under the Clean Air Act to try to regulate greenhouse gases. Ever since climate legislation got stuck in the Senate, the EPA's authority to act has been the central climate change battle. Legislators from both sides of the aisle have been trying to keep the agency from writing new rules that would curb emissions from power plants and refineries. So this could be really what's at stake in the new Congress. Mitra, the the, the Tea Party upsets have really been the the big story so far out of the the primary elections. What have we learned about the Tea Party when it comes to the environment, uh, where they stand on the environment and what this movement might mean for the environment? It's still really unclear. They've they've been really hard to pin down on a lot of issues, including the environment. Uh, I think we tend to think that they're not too interested in environmental protection, but a poll from earlier this summer found that actually more Tea Party supporters favor comprehensive climate change legislation than oppose it. So they're far from being a a monolith ideologically. And the big question, of course, what does this new political climate mean for action on climate change? Well, I guess we'll have to see what happens in the general elections. A lot of analysts think that the really conservative candidates like Christine O'Donnell could end up delivering even more votes to Democrats. So that in turn could mean more votes for addressing climate change. But I think given the kind of rhetoric that survived the primaries, it it might be really hard for politicians, especially Republicans, to conclude that climate action is the popular thing to do right now. Mitra Taj is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thanks, Mitra. Thank you, Jeff. moment genetically modified fish. Is it frankenfood or a practical answer to the planet's protein appetite? Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The Food and Drug Administration is considering approval of the first genetically modified animal for human consumption. It's a fish, a farm-raised Atlantic salmon carrying a gene and gene marker from two other fish species. The Massachusetts-based company Aqua Bounty says food from its fish is no different than food from other Atlantic salmon. The FDA's initial findings seem to agree with the company, which calls the new fish the Aqua Advantage salmon. Some environmental and fisheries groups have other names for it. They call it Frankenfish and Mutant in a campaign to block FDA approval. These groups say the fish could have profound unintended effects on wild fish and could open the regulatory doors to approval for other genetically altered animals. Ron Stoddish is Aquabounty's president and CEO. He came by our studio to answer those criticisms and to tell us just what his company's new fish is. Well, this is an Atlantic salmon, first and foremost, and uh, what is been done is a single copy of the growth hormone gene from the Chinook salmon has been inserted into this Atlantic salmon genome. So it has the normal resident Atlantic salmon growth hormone, and it also has this extra copy. That extra copy basically confers the rapid growth phenotype or the ability to grow more rapidly in that first year of life. How much faster? 
the most easily measured uh, or most easily described endpoint is that it will reach market weight in about half the time. And it's more tolerant to cold? Do I understand that correctly? No, not really. The uh, confusion on that was because the promoter, if you will, the on-off switch for the gene is from a cold water uh, fish called the ocean pout. That is simply a regulatory element and simply allows the gene to be transcribed into uh, the protein, the growth hormone. Now, why do we need a genetically altered salmon? Well, the fish was originally developed as a faster-growing production tool for the salmon industry. However, as we developed the technology, we realized that this technology could be adapted to allow uh, other production systems that could be land-based that have the potential to reduce transportation costs, reduce the carbon footprint of transportation of large quantities of salmon, and basically be a a sustainable uh, method of production of a a safe and readily available seafood product. Because this is land-based aquaculture that you, you want this to be applied to, What does that mean for our our long-term view of of how we're going to produce our fish? Well, if you consider the trout industry, for instance, trout are already produced in primarily land-based contained systems. The systems used for aqua advantage fish would not be uh, remarkably different uh, from those in principle, perhaps more sophisticated. So what does it mean? It means if you were able to grow salmon economically in land-based systems closer to population centers, you could probably create jobs in the United States. You could probably grow seafood closer to population centers. And the net result would be a reduction of the transportation costs, a reduction of the carbon footprint, and perhaps most importantly, a safe and sustainable high-quality seafood product closer to the population centers where consumption occurs. That's a good argument for land-based aquaculture, but why is that an argument for a genetically modified fish? Because salmon particularly in their first year of life, grow very slowly. The benefit of a more rapidly growing fish, which is slightly more efficient, reducing the cycle times and reducing the the time required to maturation, significantly alters those economics, making this a safe and sustainable alternative. So as a consumer, would I know, uh, if you get approval, that I'm buying a genetically modified animal? Under the current U.S. labeling policy and laws, the uh, use of a label uh, for a material that is not materially different or not different in any significant uh, aspect is not necessary and, in fact, uh, might be false and misleading. So, uh, How would it be false and misleading? Well, you're indicating perhaps a difference that isn't there. If it is equivalent to the traditional food, there is no material difference. Uh, Then there really isn't any basis for uh, a label. A label, for instance, for mode of production. Uh, We don't label other commodities for methods of production. Sure we do. We have farm-raised versus wild-caught, for example. Well, you can, but that's voluntary labeling, and and voluntary labeling is still legal under the law. But I think what you're referring to is is special labeling, required labeling, indicating that this is, for instance... uh, Uh, produced using a transgenic technology. But the difficulty in uh, a required labeling and segregation of the product, we think probably would provide an adequate barrier that it would probably in effect kill the product and never give it a chance to to even be tested. What do you make of the opposition to uh, approval of your product, Uh, this uh, coalition of some 30 uh, groups, some environmental groups, some groups that represent fishermen? What do you make to their, their opposition, which is primarily around environmental concerns, that if your fish gets out there, it might uh, cause problems. 
Many of the concerns that are being raised out there today ignore the information that's already in the public domain in terms of the sterility of the fish, all monosex, female nature of the fish, and the fact that there's redundant and biological physical containment uh, for these fish. So any salmon producer who purchases the eggs must have their facility inspected by the FDA prior to being able to receive those eggs. And a part of that inspection will also include the preparation of an environmental assessment. There are people who are opposed because they see this production paradigm as a possible commercial threat to their product. Uh, so the opposition comes in many forms, much of it in mis misunderstanding, uh, much of it also vehemently opposed to, to new technology, and particularly uh, technologies that may be based in genetic modification. Because this could be the first, does that put an extra burden on you or on this decision-making process? Because in all likelihood, there are other companies with other genetically modified animals that would follow in your footsteps, fin, fin steps, whatever it might be here. <laughs> well, of, of course it does. And there's always a challenge with being a pioneer. There's a significant burden that goes along with it. It would be uh, stating the obvious to say that we've attracted the attention of everyone who is opposed to this technology for whatever reason and become sort of a lightning rod for the technology. So what's your hunch? Uh, is this going to be pretty soon a, a common product? Well, if you read the reviews and the decisions from the review group, uh, you would hope that uh, this product will be approved and will be entered into commerce. And how is it? Have you tried it? It's wonderful. <laughs> it's, it's exactly the same as a, a high-quality Atlantic salmon. Ron Stoddish with Aqua Bounty. Thanks for coming by. Thank you very much. Aqua Bounty is also seeking approval to sell their genetically modified salmon in other countries. There's a lot more on this at our website, LOE.org, and share your thoughts at our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Well, obviously, Ron Stoddish has his own fish to fry in this case, but whether or not consumers find the whole idea of genetic modification palatable is a whole other kettle of fish. Paul Greenberg wrote the new book, Four Fish, which tells the story of salmon, tuna, bass, and cod, and our reliance on them as food. And he has something else on his plate. So Uncle Sam walks into a fish restaurant, takes off his star-spangled hat, and asks the waiter what's on special. Uh, today we have a genetically modified Atlantic salmon spliced with a Pacific salmon growth gene and modulated by a regulator protein from an ocean pout. Uh, okay, anything else? Not much, I'm afraid. Just a wild sockeye from the pristine, unpolluted waters of Bristol Bay, Alaska. What'll it be? If you were in Uncle Sam's seat, you'd surely choose the wild salmon over the modified one. But our government, forever at odds with itself when it comes to figuring out the puzzle of the American seafood supply, is leaning towards the transgenic. At this very moment, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is close to approving an engineered Atlantic salmon that grows twice as fast as an unmodified fish. If North America's existing salmon farms all switch to growing modified animals, we could have about a quarter of a billion more pounds of salmon in the market every year. Sounds good on the surface, but seen in the larger context of American fisheries, it doesn't make much sense. While the government seeks to boost farm salmon supplies through transgenics, it is simultaneously letting wild salmon go to pot. At the headwaters of Bristol Bay, Alaska, the spawning grounds of perhaps the most productive wild salmon runs left on Earth, the international mining giant Anglo-American plans to construct Pebble Mine, the largest open-pit copper and gold mine in the U.S. Mines of this nature are notoriously bad for fish. Just this past summer, a copper mine failure in China's Ting River killed millions of fish. A similar disaster in the Bristol Bay fishery could mean the destruction of around a quarter of a billion pounds of salmon. 
curiously, about the same amount of salmon that Aqua Bounty hopes to produce with its transgenic fish. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has the power to stop Pebble Mine through the Clean Water Act, but has so far failed to act. More transgenic fish, less wild fish. You have to scratch your head at a government that's planning that kind of seafood menu for its citizens. Instead of endorsing a risky experiment in genetic salmon modification, wouldn't it be better if our leaders protected wild salmon habitat? In the end, we'd have just as much fish on our plates and a safer environment to boot. Personally, I'd hate to go into a restaurant and have a transgenic fish be the only salmon option on the menu. If that ends up being the case, I might just order the chicken. Paul Greenberg is the author of Four Fish, The Future of the Last Wild Food. heard about a newly discovered species of frog called a microfrog. It's about the size of a pea. It was discovered living inside pitcher plants in Borneo by a team of scientists searching the world for lost amphibians. Over the next year and a half, they'll travel to 20 countries in search of more than 40 species no one has seen in more than a decade. Robin Moore is one of the Conservation International herpetologists getting ready for one of those rugged trips. My first exhibition will be to Colombia, in the mountains, very remote forests. We'll probably be hiking for about five hours to get to the localities that we need to get to. We're going to be searching for four species. The most interesting species to me, I think, is the Mesopotamia beaked toad, and it hasn't been seen since 1914. All we have is an artist's rendition of the species. If we do find this, we'll be able to capture the, the first photos of this, the first video To me, it's going to be an exciting search. How do you even know where to look? I mean, if all you have to go on is an artist's drawing from from 95 years ago. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. We also believe that this toad doesn't need water to breed, so it probably lays eggs which hatch directly into toadlets. So that also makes it tricky because we can't rely on it being in or around water. So basically, it could be anywhere in the forest, And it's designed to look like a leaf, you know, it's designed to be camouflaged and to hide. So the fact it hasn't been seen for 96 years uh, definitely suggests it's good at not being found. So (laughs) (laughs) we're going to try and uh, thwart it. Well, let's say you get lucky and you do find one of these. Well, then what? The, The next step, if we do find one of these, is to determine whether the species is doing okay, whether it's threatened, whether the the habitat it's in needs protection, uh, and also to highlight the, the species as a flagship species for conservation. And we, we have a recording, I think, of one of the frogs that you're going to be looking for. This is uh, the sharp-snouted day frog. Let's Let's listen to a bit of that. Uh, this is a, a species from um, northeast Australia, from Queensland. Since 1994, only three individuals have ever been seen, and I think the last sighting was around uh, 1997. It's believed to have possibly gone extinct um, as a result of a, a disease which has been spreading around the world. 
and has really impacted a lot of amphibians. And it lives in a region which has been affected by this fungus, which is why we think it could have succumbed. But, you know, you just never know. How is that fungus spreading? The mechanism by which it's spreading is largely a mystery. There's some theories that it originated in Africa. The earliest known record is from an African frog, the African clawed frog, which is actually used to be used for pregnancy testing in people. So it was transported um, around the world, which would have been one way that it spread. In other instances, it, it shows up in places where we don't really know how it got there. You know, maybe it traveled on the, the leg of a bird or in an insect. There's so many ways that it could enter an area that we're still getting a grasp on exactly how this fungus works, how it moves. At the same time, it's absent from some areas where we would expect it to occur. Madagascar seems to be free from the fungus. You know, just looking down the list of some of the animals here, the names alone are so evocative. The Venezuelan skunk frog, Schneider's banana frog, gastric brooding frog. Where do these names come from? The common name is usually a local name that's been given to the frog, depending on appearance or behavior. Uh, the gastric brooding frog is one of the most interesting ones. What they do is when they lay their eggs, the female actually takes the eggs, ingests them into her stomach. She turns off her digestive juices and the eggs develop into tadpoles and actually develop all the way into small froglets in the stomach. And then she gives birth to fully formed frogs out of her mouth. That's amazing. This to me would be a, a phenomenal finding. It hasn't been seen since the mid-80s. And with, with its disappearance really went the opportunity to do research into what exactly is happening here with the brooding. There have been suggestions that we could have learned a lot about mechanisms for turning off the digestive juices that could have helped us control things like stomach ulcers. Well, I guess that points to the larger question about why do this? You know, why go to the jungles of, of Colombia and, and these far-flung places, which can't be easy? Why is this important? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, it's certainly not easy. Uh, hearing back from some of our search teams who have already started going out into the field, you know, about land mudslides and heavy rains, and, you know, you're really up against the elements when you're out there, and it's not easy. I think uh, this is important because we've known for a while that amphibians are not doing well. Uh, we know that a third are threatened with extinction, and there are many species that we suspect have gone extinct. And I think to lose a third of an entire class that's around 2,000 species would have devastating consequences. Amphibians play a number of vital roles. First of all, they feed on insects, uh, such as crop pests, and disease vectors, so mosquitoes, which carry malaria. Um, they also play a very important role in cycling nutrients. They, they form a link between the aquatic and the terrestrial environments. So if you remove an amphibian from the system, it's almost like removing two species, because often you're removing the tadpoles, which are regulating the nutrients in streams. They're keeping the streams clean, they're eating the algae, and you're also removing the adults, which are feeding on the invertebrates, the insects in the forest, and helping recycle these back into the system. So if you remove amphibians, we really don't know what the cascading impacts are going to be. Um, and, you know, personally, I don't really want to find out the hard way, because once, once we lose these, you know, we can't bring them back. Here we are watching 
this mass extinction. Most of us are aware of this, I think, to some degree, and yet not doing much about it for the most part. It kind of reminds me of the old saw about putting a frog in a pot of water and slowly raising the heat. It's hard sometimes for people to really uh, relate to something that's so uh, removed from their everyday life. And I, I think one of, one of the things we wanted to achieve with this campaign is to engage people. You know, I know the list is depressing when you think that these haven't been seen for a long time. But we're hoping that by finding some of these, uh, we'll also have some good news stories that will allow us to show that there, you know, there is still hope. There is still a lot out there worth saving. And I think tapping into that sense of exploration, discovery, uh, is something that we need to do to really help to connect people with you know, the world around us. Robin Moore is a herpetologist and amphibians conservation officer for Conservation International. Thank you very much. Thank you. And hey, if you happen to find the Mesopotamian beaked toad, you'll let us know, right? I will do. I will do. I hope we can report some good news. Just to have the upper crust sport of sailing find some new fans. Inner City Kids. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Sailing has never been what you'd call a democratic sport. It conjures images of wealthy yacht clubs, blazers, and topsiders. But a Boston nonprofit called Courageous Sailing wants to make sailors out of inner city kids and help them reconnect with the outdoors and learn to value the sea. For more than two decades, the organization has worked to turn the historically elite white sport into an activity that transcends race and class. Planet Harmony's Amy Nin reports from Boston's Charlestown Navy Yard. All right, ready to attack? Ready, ready. It's a fairly windy day, and that means conditions are just right for sailing. Kids, thrilled to be out on a 20-foot sailboat, tug on ropes to control which direction they're heading. Right, where do you want to go first, the Mystic or the Basin? Here at Courageous Sailing Center, kids from all over the city get to experience what it's like to be out on a boat. It's kind of a once-in-a-time experience to just be out here on a boat all day. experience is really good because I, I would never have done this because I just don't live near water, really. Nine-year-old Gabriella from the South End isn't the only young sailor who may not realize the sea is actually in her backyard. More than 1,000 low-income Boston kids get the opportunity to sail for free through the organization. Kate Henderson directs the youth program and wants kids to reconnect to the city's maritime past. And that's what we try to do here is to not only get them to try this sport, which is so foreign to them culturally a large part of the time, but also gets them exposed to an environment that unfortunately has become very foreign to them, but is also very important for them to, I think, appreciate and learn to interact with. Henderson says diversity is one of the program's strengths. More than half of the kids are African-American or Latino. It's interesting to hear that 
these kids learn from each other that though people may seem different on the surface, we're all just people deep down. And it, it really opens them up to, to just new experiences, new people, and making friendships with people unlike themselves. It makes them more open-minded. Worlds apart from the bustling Charlestown Navy Yard are the scenic Boston Harbor Islands. The sailing program expanded three years ago to include kids at a summer day camp on one of the islands. One of the biggest, most challenging groups we've worked with is probably this group at Camp Harborview where literally kids felt like this was just, just a white man's sport and uh, that going out on boats was just this silly, frivolous you know, thing. Camp Harborview serves kids from at-risk neighborhoods and is run by the city of Boston and the Boys and Girls Club. Jennifer Toscano-Seibert directs this site. This summer, we've really seen a lot more Latino campers and a lot more campers of African-American descent. It's really exciting for us. There's no reason why the harbor should not be accessible to everyone who lives in Boston. With sailing, often come life lessons. At least that's what 13-year-old Kristen from Dorchester found. I decided to do sailing because it's something I've never tried before and I was curious about it. I've learned that, like, don't give up once you, like, try one thing. Because, like, when I first started, sailing was kind of hard, but now I kind of get it. It's tons of fun. I love learning how to steer the boat. Now, sailing has become routine for the kids who go out on the boats each day at camp. But 14-year-old Terrell from Dorchester remembers his first outing. Well, my first year here, I went sailing, and the sailor instructor, he tipped the boat, and I got very, very scared. Like, everything was just falling down this way. So then I started to cry because I was very scared. I thought the boat was going to, like, tip over. So I had to go back in the motorboat and wait at the dock. What a difference three years make. I'm used to the tipping, and it's not so scary anymore. And I hope to sail to many places. The lessons also include a concern for the marine environment, where kids even perform experiments. Yeah, you want to try it? Here, just dip it in a little bit then bring it back up, and then the color will tell you how acidic your basic is. The kids dip a strip of pH paper in the water, just one of the hands-on activities offered through a collaboration between Courageous and a local environmental organization, Save the Harbor, Save the Bay. It's called the Green Boat, and in this floating classroom, kids get to do things like tow for plankton, measure water transparency, and even clean up the harbor. Here's Gabriella again. Sometimes I see people throwing trash in the harbor, and... I sometimes ask them to stop. I never really realized how much trash we use and how bad the environment is if we throw trash in the harbor all day. Youth director Kate Henderson says kids often become environmental stewards after they enter the program. You get it all the time. What we're teaching these kids is not only to enjoy the outdoors in Boston Harbor, but also to become advocates for the harbor. So we have so many kids who have gone into the fields of marine biology and environmental science, which is really great to see that these kids really want to give back. Aboard the green boat are youth helpers from Save the Harbor, Save the Bay, like 16-year-old Mark Rose from Dorchester. To be honest, I really didn't know most of these places existed until now. Like all the islands, the Boston Harbor Islands, the Courageous sailing center, like all this is so new to me. Mark now says his goal is to get friends and family from his community to explore the harbor as well. The kids here are the ones who actually taught me how to sail. I, I never been on a sailboat in my whole entire life before I started working. People around my community, like, they don't really get out. I want to make it possible for them to come out here anytime they want. I definitely want to come back next year. Like, you have the time of your life. And for Mark and the other kids, the limited view of the world around them now stretches far beyond their horizons.
For Planet Harmony and Living on Earth, I'm Amy Nin. All right, unclick that cell. Amy reports for our sister program, Planet Harmony, which welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at myplanetharmony.com. Now, with luck, none of those kids sailing in Boston Harbor will ever encounter a truly massive wave. Monster waves, the gobble-up ships leaving no trace nor survivors, are the stuff of myth and legend. And Hollywood. Think Poseidon Adventure. But better instruments and satellite tracking have shown that huge freak waves are not really that uncommon. Susan Casey, who wrote about great white sharks in her book The Devil's Teeth, has a new book about great blue waves. It's called The Wave, in pursuit of the rogues, freaks, and giants of the ocean. She told Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood that even today, an ocean-going ship is engulfed by a mammoth wave every two weeks. Those ships are hitting rogue waves in storm conditions you know, waves that can be three and even four times bigger than the seas around them. So if you've got 50-foot seas, you can easily get a 100 or 120-foot rogue wave. And um, scientists really had to reckon with the fact that these waves do exist. In your book, Susan Casey, you tell the story of a scientific uh, ship in the UK that documented these giant waves. Could you tell us that story now, please? Yes, the RRS Discovery, I read about this and I had to read the article twice to believe what I was reading, was a group of scientists from Britain and Scotland who were out in the North Atlantic and they were hit by about 48 hours worth of 60, 70, 80, 90, and even 100-foot waves and they were trapped out there in these waves and almost didn't survive them. And what was great not so much for them, but for everyone else, was that the ship had all kinds of -of state-of-the-art scientific instruments on it. So it was perfectly equipped to capture every measurement of what the ocean was doing. And what they found out and eventually published a paper about was that the models, the meteorological models and the wave models had not predicted these waves, that they shouldn't have been there, and that in fact the kinds of really extreme and almost freakish seas that had sort of been seen as sailors' tall tales really did exist. There was direct proof there. So what's a really big wave? Well, in the book, I talk about a wave that happened in 1958 in a very spooky area of the Alaskan coast that was 1,740 feet tall. That's a big wave. Wait a second. That's the the old world. (laughs) That's the Empire State Building. I think plus some. That is the biggest wave that has been measured accurately. And the reason they were able to know exactly how big that wave was was geologists were later able to go in and measure where the trees stop. It's like a razor came along and just shaved them all off. And when they were up there looking into that, they found out that this had happened quite regularly in this bay. Now, this is all related to landslides and earthquakes, that sort of thing. Yes. And in the book, I talk about several different types of giant waves. In that case, it was kind of a localized tsunami. The most dramatic waves that we have on Earth are caused by big landslides, either on the land that then fall into the water or below the sea and cause tsunamis. And they can be provoked by earthquakes. They can be provoked by a volcanic island collapsing. But but those are the really dramatic ones. Those are the ones that rewrite the maps. Now, one thing you mentioned in your book is that the average height of ocean waves seems to be increasing. Why is that? And uh, should we be worried about it? Well, I think that the ocean has always been, you know, a very powerful and volatile place. And the increase that seems to be happening in waves has to do with a number of different effects. One of them is are these overarching climate patterns. And these are really poorly understood things because we haven't had 
the the ability to measure you know long time climate patterns because we haven't been doing it for very long and we haven't even been around that long when you think of geological time so the, that the increased wind that comes from a warmer ocean and potentially stormier environment just caused by climate change so i don't know about worried but aware certainly so let's talk about climate change and big waves you lift several things in your book that uh, could change wave patterns for one thing you say climate change could increase the frequency of earthquakes. How's that? This is what happens. When glaciers melt, they they tend to change distribution of weight. It's either more or less weight on the land or on the seabed. And it's it's a pretty dramatic amount. Like if the sea goes up even a small bit in terms of sea level, that adds up to so much weight. And that then weights the tectonic plates of the earth and various fault lines differently. They call it isostatic rebound. And what they suspect is that at the end of the last ice age, when the glaciers were sort of pouring into the ocean and, you know, parallels to what we've we've got now with rapidly shrinking glaciers, there was a flurry of earthquake and volcanic activity. You know, when things are moving around, when there's sediment or earthquakes below the water or even on land and falling into the water, that will, that can equate to a tsunami. So how likely is it that uh, science is going to be able to predict big waves, or should we just, uh, you know, chalk them up to the unpredictable nature of nature? Well, I think nature is always going to defy our attempts to completely dissect it in any sort of rational, logical way, because chaos and, and random events are really a part of its complexity. But there are some very, very smart people trying to make better climate models and better wave models and to better understand how we can be in harmony with these potentially destructive or certainly incredibly powerful forces. And that work just goes on continuously. And when you have something like the tsunami of 2004 and a, a you know tragedy like that, or the, the sort of amazing power that was witnessed as the storm surge came over the levees in Hurricane Katrina, I think it shows how important it is going to be for us to be able to understand this in such a way that we can we can live with it. Part of your book you devote to a search for, I guess, a surfing a holy grail, what, to ride a 100-foot wave? Yes. Why would someone want to ride a 100-foot wave? It sounds like death wish to me. I would definitely agree with you. I wanted to find out. I uh, saw a 20-foot wave uh, years ago and had never forgotten how terrified I was when I saw it. And somebody was riding it. And uh, I didn't understand how he could survive it. And then a few years later, they started toe surfing. And I saw pictures of some of the characters in my book riding 60 and 70-foot waves. And I was absolutely riveted. I couldn't understand how people didn't die every time they went out. You need to explain toe surfing. Toe surfing was invented in 1995 as a means to ride bigger waves. Waves that are bigger than, say, 30 or 40 feet are not possible for us to paddle into. They're just moving too fast. I described it in the book as trying to catch the subway by crawling. You just, you're not going to get it. It's just going to go thundering past you. So the biggest, most interesting waves for some of the surfers were in the, what they called the unridden realm. And they eventually, through sort of painful trial and error, figured out that they could use jet skis to pull a partner onto the crest of the wave. And it could be, theoretically, it could be any size wave. It could be a 100-foot wave, but they were doing it with 60 and 70-foot waves with success. This sounds absolutely nuts. A jet ski is not the easiest thing in the world to handle. Now you're going to have this 60 feet above, you know, there's a big hole at the bottom of that wave. Well, and not to mention that, that water is, you know, 800 times denser than air. So when it comes crashing down on your head, it does some damage. 
And as I said, it was a very painful trial and error process. How many people get killed doing this? You know, every so often somebody will get killed or injured very badly. Or sometimes, I think what happens a lot more often is they get scared to the point where they never want to do it again. I asked a lot of them to describe to me that what it feels like to be held down by a wave that big. And it's, I think it's a truly fearsome experience. And some of the best surfers that I encountered and interviewed said, you know, they had instances where they really, as one surfer put it, saw the mandala. And they didn't want to go back, right back out there and do this thing that they loved. It took years to feel like they were in control again. In other words, they thought they were about to die. They were drowning. Yeah. And, and most of them do have that experience. And you feel fine going to sea knowing that these waves are out there? I definitely would. It's just I think you always have to have your wits about you. You have to know that these waves are out there. And I also think the last thing I would want people to do is to read this book and think I'm more scared of the ocean. I mean, I feel as though part of my purpose in writing it was so that we could understand more this great force that's so much a part of the planet that we live on. And if we understand it more, then maybe we can respect it a little bit more. Because one of the things that seems so counterproductive is to treat the ocean like it's this other thing over there and we can dump stuff into it and we don't have to worry about understanding it. You know, what I'd like to do is shed more light onto what's going on in the darkest heart of the ocean. Susan Casey's new book is called The Wave in Pursuit of the Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you. Now we take a bird's eye view of shorebird migration in this installment of our new occasional series, Bird Note. In September, all across North America, the southward migration of shorebirds reaches its peak. Millions of shorebirds, the sandpipers and plovers that grace our shorelines, are on the move. And many birders now flock to the mudflats to watch the annual pilgrimage. Most shorebirds nest in high northern latitudes, such as the Arctic tundra. Where are these migrants bound? Well, a surprising number fly all the way to South America. Hudsonian godwits, which hatch their young near Hudson Bay and in extreme northwest Canada, winter in southeastern South America, some as far south as Tierra del Fuego. Lovely American golden plovers fly similar distances. Some log nearly 20,000 miles in their annual circuit from the Argentine pampas to the Arctic and back. The beautiful black-bellied plover, which also nests in the far north, has a very different migratory strategy. Wintering primarily on coastal beaches and mudflats, black-bellied plovers spread themselves out for the colder months, all the way from the Canadian border to central South America. That's Frank Corrado for BirdNote. For photos and more information, go to our website, loe.org. Living 
Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at Stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.